My father was age 93, would have been 94 on July 31st of this year. And, of course, I remember better than any human being on the face of this earth, with the exception of my two sisters, Mrs. Beverly Gott, Mrs. Dorothy Matson. Practically everything there is to know about my dad, from my earliest recollections, the tiny boy of two or three, right on through the last few years when I have tried to stay in touch with him indirectly through uh, my sister's household servants, certain people inside that organization with whom I have spoken, in spite of our unnecessary and enforced estrangement, which was not either of my making or my choice, but which is, of course, the double sadness to me. Had it not been for that, had it been for merely the fact of his death at that great age, and being given the very great blessing of dying peacefully as he dozed in his chair, there could be much for which I could be thankful. My grandmother lived to be 96, and she merely put down her Bible and her reading glasses and nodded off for a nap in her chair and didn't wake up. And certainly the greatest blessing God could give any of us at the end of a life of that duration is to pass from this life peacefully just like one goes to sleep, which after all is what death really is. It's a profound, deep, untroubled sleep from which we simply do not awake until the time of the resurrection. What, of course, is deeply grievous to me is that in spite of all of the machinations and the politics and in spite of all of the wishes and the hopes of those at either pole, those who within the Church of God International would have viewed my reconciliation with my father with some apprehension, or those in the Worldwide Church of God who begged for it and prayed for it for seven and a half years, I still say that the greatest tragedy in my life was being unable to get to, to get next to, to be with my father, if not when he died, at least sometime in these last few years to express myself to him heart to heart. When I got the news the other morning, my sister Beverly called us and my wife picked up the telephone. I was, of course, shocked, even though I had expected for the past several years that my father might die at practically any time. As a result of one of his letters only about a month or so ago, in which he himself sounded quite grave and quite sober about his condition, I called Ralph Helge, Norman Smith, Garland Snucker. I called Rona twice. Rona Martin is his housekeeper and cook. I called others in the organization, and I repeatedly asked, is he as bad as that letter sounds? The rumors are over here in Big Sandy that he may not live until the beginning of the year. Repeatedly they told me, oh no, it's just that his red blood cells are not reproducing and he is not gaining strength even though he is not necessarily losing any more strength, but that he is basically just staying even. I now realize that wasn't quite the truth. And having had a nice long talk with Mr. Aaron Dean this morning, Aaron was my dad's closest personal aide and assistant and has literally lived in the home with him for the past many months. Uh, Aaron Dean was in his own home for the first night in six weeks when my father died. He had been spending up to five to seven hours reading to him those articles or publications or the paper or magazines or whatever my father wanted to hear uh, every day in 
until Aaron's voice would literally just break with the effort and wear out, and he simply couldn't go any further. So the information that I have, I think, is from a very good source and very close to my father. For the last four months, he was continually on oxygen, not 100%, low enough level, but where you have the little plastic tubes that are taped and come around a harness behind your ears like eyeglasses and go into the nostrils. Very uncomfortable, but he had forced himself to become accustomed to that. Even the effort of getting up was very, very exhausting to him, and in the last four nights, he did not sleep in his own bed. Uh, when he would go to bed, there was fluid collecting in the abdominal cavity or the lung. It would place pressure upon the heart, which would bring about angina, or angina, as many people call it, pain in the chest. And he therefore would sit up in the chair, which gave him relief. And so for the last four nights, he has actually sat and dozed on and off in that chair. And I did not know that until this morning. But he died at about one minute before 6 a.m. on Thursday morning. My earliest recollections of my father are, of course, those of a very small boy, of a father that I did not know as well as I wanted to know, or as well as I might have known, in the way that many fathers and sons know each other who are of a closer generation. My father was 38 when I was born in 1930 in Eugene, in Portland, Oregon. How well I remember those early years as a young boy when my father was an ordained minister of the Church of God's Seventh Day in Oregon, beginning in 1931. I have no recollection of that. I was only one year of age, but I certainly have recollection of those early years when he began on the radio. According to a sort of a archaic FCC fairness doctrine back during that time, it was required of the very few radio stations scattered across the United States that they devote at least a portion of their programming time to religion and that it be without any special favors toward any particular denomination. It had to be completely interdenominational. And so as the station program director canvassed the various ministers or pastors of churches in little Eugene, Oregon back in the 1930s, most of those men were either scared to death of this instrument, a microphone, because it was so new in 1934, uh, then were the, the, even the great radio shows with which we're familiar, Jack Benny later on, years later, Red Skelton, uh, Fibber McGee and Molly, uh, the uh, Gangbusters, the Lone Rangers, some of the old, old 30s and 40s radio shows that came on. Radio was in its infancy, and there weren't a lot of people out there who were willing to tackle that medium. Well, my father was a very dynamic, a very hard-working, very energetic man. And even though that program was at something like 6 a.m. in the morning when they invited him because others had turned it down, he took the opportunity. And he went before that microphone sometime late in 1933, and I think October or November. The phones began ringing, and they got a few letters as a result of the program. And I've forgotten the last name of the gentleman. His name is mentioned in my father's autobiography, but he was so impressed with a response because that had never happened before. But he called my father and he said, look, he said, you have quite a radio voice. And he said, you ought to be on the radio. Have you ever considered taking your church service on the airwaves? My father said, absolutely not. He had never even thought of such a thing. Well, he wanted him to think about it and said that he could give him a full half hour at $3 per week per program. 
Well, my father didn't know where in the world he would ever come up with that kind of money. And with the local people there, and he's written that in his autobiography, he felt that some of them, including an elderly lady in Eugene, could probably come up with about a dollar and a half a week. He had to write a letter, go visit other people around Cottage Grove and Harrisburg and in the Oregon Valley there near Eugene to try to get people to underwrite or to pledge that amount. And on the faith that that amount would be coming in, he went on the radio the 1st January of 1934. I don't remember that radio program. I suppose I was too young. I know I must have heard it. But I remember very, very well in those early years being on the living room rug with the old Philco or being in the automobile with my father saying, shush, kids, as he would drive onto a hill or into a valley and it would fade and then it would come in again and he would turn the car this way and that and then finally, through the static, get his own voice and we would stop with the lights out off on a gravel road in Oregon and listen to the broadcast. Excuse me. I knew this was going to happen and I'll try to prevent it. Excuse me. But uh, some of those memories are, are something. I remember so well what a family effort the work of God was in those early years. My sisters opened and read the mail. My mother was the whole co-worker department. She hand-addressed the Plain Truth magazine, which was only a little uh, kind of a best pocket folded piece of mimeograph literature. When I was nine, I used to slip sheet for my mother. She would turn that old mimeograph, or the neo-style, which was a predecessor of the mimeograph, and I would earn about five cents a day for doing that. We had big, thick kind of cardboard sheets, and I had a big armload of them, and she would crank, a sheet would come out, and I would quickly put the cardboard sheet on top of it. Later on, they learned through a wire and a kind of a hopper mechanism to actually have an automatic uh, blotter sheet to put between so the ink would not smear on the back of the next sheet that would come through the mimeograph. I can remember the smell of that ink. I can remember the ink well, and how we rolled it up and it had a portion that was open, and you took the brush and brushed the matting behind it so that the ink would absorb and would come through the stencil. I remember helping to hold the stencil up against the window so my father could get the light from outside to take a little stylus, as it was called, and to actually by hand carve out the plain truth in his own free hand and then dot it all in. I helped prepare hundreds of those stencils. I remember helping my mom carry the mail to the post office, which was only across the street from our office then on the corner of Willamette and 6th Avenue in Eugene, Oregon. My roots go very, very deep into the work of God, and that was all we ever called it back in those days, the work. I remember growing up, going to sleep on the pew, listening to my father's preaching. I remember the Wednesday night prayer meetings and being puzzled as a little boy at the pools of water that were tears in the way that they sunk into the floor and the altar there after altar call. And I remember every Sabbath the entire congregation standing up and reading the Ten Commandments in unison which hung on the wall. I remember the first trip my dad took me on when I was 14 and we went across the very first time I'd been aboard any kind of a vessel out in the water. It was across the Puget Sound from Seattle to Bremerton and it was an overnight trip in those days, quite a slow moving trip. And there was a piano in a kind of a lobby lounge up above on a uh, deck of that ferry. My dad used to love to play his favorite repertoire of songs, and he began playing those songs. And I sat there, and I was very proud of him because quite a little crowd of people began gathering around, and some of them were singing Alice Blue Gown or things like this, and, and dad was sort of the, the popular person on the boat. 
And I didn't know that about my father. I didn't know he had that uh, that kind of talent. I mean, I'd heard him play a few times at home, but the fact he was playing in front of people amazed me. It made quite a profound impression upon me. And I was 14 at that time, and I remember going to Bremerton and going aboard. Uh, I'm sorry, no, I was about I was about nine at that time, I think, when that trip happened, because I went aboard. It had to be about 39 because I went aboard the Arizona, the Nevada, the Utah, the Oklahoma, and the California. And, uh, of course, only a couple of years later, some of those ships were at the bottom of the bay in Pearl Harbor. But many memories, of course, come back to me, and it isn't my purpose to go through all those and simply reminisce with you here all day today. They're very important things to talk about because I think a very great event has occurred, and I want to remind us of the dimension that my father occupied in the lives and the hearts and the minds of literally millions of people all around the world and in a very acute sense to about 100,000 people of the Worldwide Church of God. My heart goes out to them because in one sense of the word, though it came to me as a very grievous loss and a great shock, I don't think those brethren of mine are anywhere near so well fortified or so well equipped to withstand the emotional shock they have been dealt. I'm not quite sure that they are able to cope with it in the same way that I am because I think their hopes and their aspirations were so inextricably interwoven with his life and with the duration of his life and with their expectancy that he would be the one to be here until the second coming of Christ, until the church went to a place of safety or some great event such as that. But I think you need to remember them in your prayers that none of them will do anything untoward or ill-advised and try to think of people in other nations. There are people in sober meetings that have been taking place while we slept these last couple of nights in Germany, France, the Philippines, other parts of the world, and even other languages who have never heard my father speak in their own tongue but have seen him, seen him on television, heard his voice, heard the voice of a translator. And to those people, it's going to be a very grievous shock and a great loss. So please remember that they're having a great deal to cope with themselves. After I got out of the Navy in 1952 and I came back to Ambassador College, my brother-in-law, Vern Matson hired me as an office manager, and it was only a part-time job while I was trying to pursue either a salesman career or something else. I was trying to be a page boy at CBS in Hollywood, which never worked out. And I began to take part-time classes in Ambassador College. I wanted the voice training, so I took chorale and voice training and speech, and that took care of most of my courses. But I had to take one Bible class. And resulting from that, and then a certain desire on my part to disprove some of the things that my father said, I remember picking up some of his booklets, and for the first time in my life, I read, really read, without just glancing at it as I helped mimeograph it or take it to the post office, really read some of the things my father was writing. And I myself was challenged in the same way he was by my mother much earlier. And unfortunately, I suppose, I started with the same motive I wanted to disprove my father. I didn't look at it as the Bereans did to prove whether these things were so. I attempted because I was trying to rationalize, well, how could all these churches be wrong? And I had my same excuses like probably all of us had. Well, who is this man to say all of these things so dynamically and so insistently and so dogmatically? And what gives him the right to be right? Well, I proved that he was right on one doctrine at a time, 
And the more I proved and the more I picked up other literature from every, other churches, the more I began to study. And that was in my second year of Ambassador College when I began to take a full load in the college. And from that time on, I began to learn very, very rapidly. By 1955, my father shocked me by suggesting that I be ordained. I went to some of the ministers who were my predecessors, some of the old uh, original pioneer students in Ambassador College, and I said, I can't be ordained. I said, it's the last thing in the world I would ever expect. I said, I'm not qualified. And that came back to my dad, and my dad said to me, Ted, he said, the very fact that you feel so completely unqualified is the greatest proof that you are to be ordained and that you are qualified. If I felt that you felt you were qualified, if you just leapt at the opportunity, you said, of course, you need to be ordained, then you shouldn't be. Well, with that argument, he convinced me and I acquiesced. And I was ordained to, as we were discovering what was conceived of as the ranks of the ministry of the church, the rank of pastor, alongside another couple of ministers on that same day. And then, by two years from that time, when I had already begun to appear as a guest speaker by 1955 on the 26 television programs my father had done on film, and on a few of the radio programs, by 1957, to my absolute shock, which I really felt dealt my brother Richard David quite a blow, he and I, however, overcame that difficulty, and he and I were very, very close and very loving uh, in the last years of his life when he, as you know, was killed in an automobile accident after a week of, of suffering at the UCLA Medical Center. He died over there after an automobile wreck up at San Luis Obispo in the summer, late summer of 1958, while I was conducting an evangelistic campaign over in Springfield, Missouri. But my father named me the executive vice president of the Church of God and of Ambassador College as early as 1957, when my brother Dick was still alive. And that hurt me and hurt Dick, I think, in a way. But nevertheless, it was something that, that came to me, and from that time on, the dimension that I began to occupy alongside my dad, for him, with him, as a partner with him, almost like a, a duo, you might say, in the work, was, of course, the hallmark of the Church of God up until about the time of 1978. I so well remember in those early years, I continually would come on and say, Greetings, friends around the world. This is Garner Ted Armstrong speaking for my father, Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong, and it was rather a lengthy introduction. And at the end of the program, I would say, this has been Garner Ted Armstrong speaking for my father, Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong, and so on. Send your letters to Herbert W. Armstrong, Box 111, Pasadena, California. Once in a while, we would get letters which would say, who is Ben Arner, uh, Garner uh, Ted Armstrong? Who's Ben Garner Ted? And they thought there was someone else. This has been... Garner Ted Armstrong, and uh, no one ever wrote in, who is, has been Garner Ted, but they did write in, who has been Garner Ted Armstrong? Well, my father, by 1959, when Brickett Wood was discovered, and he and I were on a trip that I might relate briefly at one portion of, because it's very moving to me and very meaningful, after my brother was killed in 1958. In the next couple, three months, there was much to do, of course, and a great deal of shock came through the entire church. We had to deal with the fact that one of God's ministers could die, and that was a phenomenon to us. It was shocking. I, 
so firmly believe my father would march over there and with the power and spirit of Elijah would literally resurrect my brother. I believed that. But I, I shouted out over the telephone, Norman, I said to Norman Smith, who called us in Springfield, I said, I hope he will go over there in the power of Elijah and raise Dick from the dead. And I believed and hoped and expected that that would occur. So I had quite a, a lesson to learn, and all of us did. And there were articles to write and sermons to preach. And, but by the time of, I believe, January, December-January period of... 5859, my father and I took a trip at his request that I accompany him to Europe, just the two of us. We had many, many incredibly warm, human, father-son, personal experiences, dinners, traveling together on the aircraft all over Europe together. And he began to show me some of the love and affection that previously he had lavished on my brother Dick, which certainly was who was the apple of my father's eye because he was the firstborn son that my dad had wanted so badly and had had two daughters and then ten long years went by and he thought he was never going to have a son and he's written that in his autobiography. When Dick was taken from him, it really nearly killed my dad. But uh, I remember that on one occasion we had gone to a, a very famous restaurant over in Rome, Italy and it's called the Hosteria del Orso. And it features, down in a sort of a catacombs underneath the restaurant, the ancient old Roman bricks of the emperor's days long before Christianity, dating back hundreds of years before Christ. And here you are actually in those Roman ruins, but in a restaurant. And they had a, an after-dinner area down there with a place where you could get a brandy or something or an after-dinner drink. And I'd been studying voice a good deal from that time. Of course, I graduated from the college in 1956 and had been conducting singing at some of the concerts and had conducted a couple of them myself and had sung the bass arias for the Elijah with the chorale and so on. And my father requested that I sing when these wandering minstrels with their violins came around. And they were real professionals and so on. And I understand that the song called Danny Boy is maudlin, but that was what Dad wanted, and we were going to dedicate it to Dick. And, of course, it has some words about though I softly tread above thee and so on, has to do with the death of a, of a man's son. And I sang that song, and everyone in there stopped what they were doing and listened, and the waiters stopped and listened. And when it was over, my father was just absolutely weeping, and he gave me a big bear hug and told me how much he loved me. And, of course, I think that memories like that are what I will, uh, will cling to rather than perhaps memories that came along in the last seven and a half years, which oftentimes were contrived, and sometimes I think artificially so, by third parties. I have since Thursday been besieged by the media. I spent almost nine hours on the telephone on Thursday. People came to the office over in Tyler by helicopter from Dallas. And during the course of that one day, this is just a small, not a small part, but this is the biggest part, but there were several I simply couldn't answer, including people like George Putnam, who tried to get to me, and other people I didn't have time for. But I spoke to you on Thursday, KRLD Radio, KLTV Tyler Television, the Dallas Times-Herald, the Tyler Courier, Universal Press International, Associated Press International, New York Times, LA Times, the Pasadena Star News, Newspapers in Boca Raton, Florida, and other places around the country. Channel 4, CBS in Dallas. 
And then I decided to try to accomplish all of this with one meeting only, so we arranged a press conference for yesterday at Universal City, and I came out and got there just in time for it, and present there were the Associated Press, KTLA News, World Free Press, LA Times, Pasadena Star News, KABC, KCBS-TV, KTTV, Channel 11, CBS Radio, and the City News Service, and others. I want to read to you the press release that I gave them yesterday, which was unfortunately not published in an article that was very unsettling to me that I saw this morning in the Pasadena Star News uh, that really rankled because you will tell these people all you want to about your father or your desire to reconcile with him or your love for him, but they don't want to print that. They want to print controversy and they want to print something that is sensational and that's not sensational. The fact that someone is sad because his father dies is simply not news. This is the release as I gave it to them, Los Angeles, dateline January 17, 1986. In response to press inquiries from throughout the country, Garner Ted Armstrong, former executive vice president of the Worldwide Church of God, met with reporters today, Friday, January 17th, upon arrival here to attend the funeral of his father, Herbert W. Armstrong, founder of the church. The elder Armstrong, 93, died Thursday, January 16th, creating speculation about the future leadership of the church which reportedly has 100,000 members in this country and a reported annual income of $150 million. Garner Ted Armstrong, following a dispute with his father over the issue of the elder Armstrong's marriage to a divorcee 46 years his junior, was ousted from the church in 1978. His father divorced the woman a few years later and she was awarded substantial benefits in a controversial settlement. Although, quote, I was in a position to say, I told you so, I refrained. He said, in fact, I attempted all these years to reach my father to apologize to him, but he refused to speak to me. I regret many of the things I said then. It is most unfortunate that I am here to attend his funeral without having had the opportunity to apologize to him in person. Garner Ted Armstrong, 55, since leaving his father, founded a church along the same philosophical lines. It, by the way, this was written by a news service or by a public relations firm, not by myself. I'd simply talk to them over the telephone and then they read it back to me a couple of times and I said well that sounds fine it is called the Church of God International and is based in Tyler Texas the church began in 1978 and currently has approximately 5,000 members internationally with an annual budget budget of approximately two million dollars it has been growing at the rate of about 25 percent under his Garner Ted Armstrong Evangelistic Association the Junior Armstrong's religious programming appears on Chicago's WGN and beginning on Monday, January 20th, the program will be seen on SPN, a national cable network with more than 10 million subscribers. Quote, I'm here to pay respects to my father with a great sense of grief and loss, said Garner Ted Armstrong. I was given the gift of speech by God when I was two years of age, and I, that isn't explained, so it's going to be puzzling to people. They won't know what that is about, but uh, that was covered in my dad's autobiography as well, that I could only grunt and point and couldn't speak or form words that had some impediment until I was over about two years of age and he was praying for me because of a severe cold they thought had gone into pneumonia and it just came to him while he was praying on that other problem that he ought to ask about my voice and he said my mom told me that I spoke with a full lengthy sentence on the very next morning and he's related that over the years uh, and I served in my father's ministry faithfully for more than 25 years the Junior Armstrong is credited with bringing into the Worldwide Church of God approximately 85% of its membership as of 1978. He was the principal television spokesman for the church, especially from 1958 to 1978, 
when his father was traveling extensively around the world. He served for 21 years as the executive vice president of the church's three corporate entities, and they're all named, quote, I believe that I am my father's successor, spiritually speaking. I intend to follow in his footsteps, as I always have. I intend to continue preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. I am not here to exploit a tragic situation. I have always felt a responsibility for the spiritual well-being of large numbers brought into the church under my ministry. I will continue to speak on television, in personal appearance campaigns, at local church services, and to write the many booklets and articles necessary to fulfill the Great Commission which lies clearly before us. My greatest sadness, he said, is that I could not express to my father my apologies for contributing to the circumstances that kept us separated. It would have only taken a few seconds, but I never got them." End of quote. You won't see that in the press. Uh, they simply don't seem to want to publish things like that. They want to publish other things. But God knows, of course, and I know, and, and that's the most important thing, I guess. I said to a young reporter here in Pasadena from the telephone in Tyler and then again yesterday that my father was a very powerful, dynamic, self-made, and strong-willed man, a man of great determination. I said he was autocratic, but I said, on the other hand, it took such men to accomplish and to get things done. I said he was perhaps the kind of a man, as was a man like Franklin Delano Roosevelt. In history, many people would perhaps criticize President Roosevelt. Other people revere him and hold him in, in awe and correctly remember that had he not been at the helm of government when we entered World War II, we may never have won the war. That Almighty God allowed that man to have the helm of leadership in this country at precisely the moment in history when that man was the only man for the job. And I mentioned that my father was like some of the great corporate magnates in the United States and those of uh, such repute as the Henry Fords and the John Deeres and the John D. Rockefellers of the world, all of whom were basically a personal, driving, dynamic, self-made man, all of whom had equally offsetting faults, which my father continually, especially in his earlier years, said right out of the pulpit, used to tell us in classes in the college, would tell the ministers, other that for every great quality that a human being might have, they will have an equally offsetting uh, problem or flaw somewhere. And he recognized that. And oftentimes it's easy to zero in on. It's certainly easy for me to do so in many, many points in my life. Uh, those flaws or those errors or those mistakes and to criticize them. As Winston Churchill wrote time and again in his memoirs, as he would talk about men like Neville Chamberlain and the White Paper and Peace in Our Time, he said, let those who were there at the time and only in possession of the facts of that time judge. It's far too easy for us many, many years with all the facts now in our possession to criticize. But we cannot know that we would have made a decision any differently if we had been in possession of the facts as those men knew them then. And I think that's well taken. But it took a man like Herbert W. Armstrong to build Ambassador College. And I know that lesser men would have given up dozens of times at many, many different forks in the road. There were just simply so many obstacles in what he has described in his autobiography as the birth pangs of that college and the church. 
I want to describe a couple of things because unfortunately in the media, I don't think by anyone's design, I merely think that that is the nature of the media. Some of the things that have been coming out have been a little inaccurate. My roots go so deeply into Ambassador College and the Worldwide Church of God that it is an inextricable part of my very nature and my being. I think few people know that God caused me to provide my father with the name of that college. I can show you my white and purple 1947 Eugene High School annual. I can show you the flowing script back there of the Ambassador Club. And that flowing script, Ambassador Club, inspired me to suggest to my father in 1946 in our little apartment at 342 East 13th Street in Eugene, Oregon, when he was talking about a college and what he might call it. I said, Dad, why don't you call it Ambassador College? And doesn't it say something in the Bible about being ambassadors for Christ? Well, he leapt at that, and he liked the idea, and he toyed with it, and he called my Uncle Walt Dillon, and he said, Walter, what do you think? You're going to be my first president. Do you like the sound? Ambassador College? I remember my Uncle Walt pronouncing that sound of that. He had a beautiful voice, and he was a speech teacher in 1947, the first year of the college, as well as the first president of the college. The colors of that college are purple and white. Purple, we know, is royal. White symbolizes righteousness. But they were suggested by myself to my father, and he liked the idea because they were the school colors of Eugene High School in Eugene, Oregon. They were the colors of the sweaters and the clothing that we wore. When we first came down with my dad, I sat outside over here where the Pasadena Athletic Club had been for years on Green Street and somewhere like Euclid or one of the other streets over there when he was talking to a lady in real estate about a piece of property over there that was owned by the McCormicks of lumber fame of Chicago. When we first got a hold of that property, there was an old gentleman there that I met and I wandered around through it. Matter of fact, the first few nights in Pasadena, we were his guests and I slept in what is now an upstairs room in the library, which later on was a classroom in which I took Bible under my father and other teachers and later on began to teach speech in that same upstairs bedroom where we slept as guests of that home at 363 Green Street, 1946, when I was 16. Later on, when we came down, just before the college opened in the summer of 1947, I brought two of my high school buddies. My brother and I came along with our old 1934 Ford, and we camped out on the grounds in sleeping bags and with shovels, began to scalp the yard and to work down in the lower gardens and cleaned all of the algae out of the what later became a baptismal tank, but which was really a goldfish pond and a fountain. And I remember so well all those early years of the pioneering of Ambassador College of what I became a part of and the really golden years from 1958 to 1968, shortly after my father died, when the church achieved such meteoric growth and expansion in every conceivable way, the festivals, the colleges, the church, the publications, radio and television, and grew just phenomenally by leaps and bounds at enormous percentages every single year. It will never faint or fade from my memory that I was a partner alongside my dad as an aide and assistant, as flesh of his flesh and blood of his blood, as his son and as his helper to assist in bringing about the growth and development of those colleges. It was his son, Garner Ted, who 
suggested to him we ought to have a full four years college program. When we were talking only of a small graduate level program for 15 or 20 people over in England. There were so many things in which Dad and I were partners and in which he and I together were instrumental in deciding or settling or in pursuing this or that or the other goal. We wrote letters together. We collaborated on booklets. I told Aaron Dean I am honored because I discovered that I wrote quite a few pages of my dad's most recent book, The Mystery of the Ages. You see, I was hunting years ago up here in Southern California in the mountains between here and Bakersfield, and there was an old resort that kind of closed down. And I went up there and saw an old gentleman sitting there, and there was a bright little creek running there, and I drank from it. And I remember him discussing how that creek had just started to run a year or two earlier because it had dried up, and for years and years the creek dried up, there was no water, and the resort had closed. Now they were going to reopen it. He said an earthquake a year or so earlier had come along, one of these earthquakes up around Bakersfield and shaken the mountains up there, and suddenly that creek began to run again. Well, when I was helping my father in writing about half of the Wonderful World Tomorrow, What Will It Be Like booklet many years ago, I remembered that event, and I wrote of how the Hindu Kush and the Paymarinata and the great mountains of the world, like the Atlas and the Taurus and so on, could be leveled and they would blossom as the rose, and quoted from Isaiah about the wilderness being made like a, a well-watered, beautiful place. And I wrote of that earthquake and that spring which began to run with sky blue waters again. And here it is, exactly as I wrote it in my father's book called Mystery of the Ages. Well, Aaron Dean, of course, helped my dad in gathering together material from every quarter and from old booklets and, and articles and other books that my father had written. And my father did generate some new material for the beginning and the ending of it and here and there. And Aaron read it all to him. They went over it. And I suppose they simply didn't remember or maybe that. I'm sure it was not by design. I'm, I'm sure it was accidental. But I'm glad it's there. I'm, I'm, I'm thankful it's there because uh, that book I have on my shelf in, in my office in Tyler, and at least I wrote a little bit of it. So uh, even after my dad is gone, uh, the book that is still out there and perhaps will be purchased by people, uh, I helped him write. Well, I want to go to a few scriptures that I think are cogent to what lies before me and before the work of God at this time. As I said in that press release, I really have no choice. I am, by all of my training, my upbringing, my background, and my experience, the product of my father and mother, and the product of Ambassador College and the Church of God. I'm going to turn to probably one of the most familiar scriptures in all of the Bible, Matthew 24, and begin to read in verse 14, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Now, this is not the commission to the church. It is the prophecy that the commission to the church would be fulfilled. The commission to the church is given in another place, and I want to turn to that over in Luke 24 and beginning in verse 46. In Luke 24:46 is where Jesus Christ is talking to his disciples and telling them what he wants them to do. We read that he opened their understanding that they might understand the scriptures, and it says in verse 46, And he said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Now, 
I see on Sunday morning, and as I've said time and again, I don't watch much of it. I really don't. Once in a while, I'll catch a few words, and then I, I don't like what I will see. All of a sudden, I'll the, the screen will flash on, and I'm going around the dials with my little automatic, like you would probably have at home, uh, you know, whatever you call them, the little automatic uh, transistorized uh, radio that changes the channels. We call it our clicker. It makes a clicking sound. Who's got the clicker, Cheryl said. And I say, where's the clicker? And here will all of a sudden, somebody is there, and they're over like this, and their mouths are working, and I don't quite hear the sound yet, with a Bible flopping, and it's Jimmy Swagger. And he's bent over, and he's all perspiring or something, or he's singing, or he's crying. Or I'm all, I, I click around, and here is a, a man with his eyes closed, and his hair is all white, and he's just praying away like this. And I click that away, and I find somebody else. But once in a while, I will wa watch a little bit, and I am impressed with one thing. A man like Jimmy Swaggart, for example, I have heard him on a few occasions, just a little bit, does within certain parameters. Now, I know that he doesn't understand the Ten Commandments. I know he doesn't understand the Seventh-day Sabbath. And I know that he does not understand that we are Israel, and he doesn't understand the real great plan of God. He believes in the immortality of the soul. He believes in an everlasting hellfire. He believes that people go to heaven when they die. But at least in one sense, when it comes down to convicting people of sin, if you're going to take certain sins, sins having to do with pornography, homosexuality, with infidelity, with, with dishonesty, with, with robbery, with crime, with whatever, child molestation, all the horrifying things that we see about us in society today. There are many out there who do attack and really make very clear where they stand on some of those issues. Now it says in the very commission of Jesus Christ of Nazareth to the church that we must preach repentance. Now the dictionary will tell us what repentance is, and repentance means contrition. It means to be deeply sorry. It means to be broken up. It means to be sad. It means to be contrite with a pang of conscience, and it means to see oneself as being utterly sinful, and to see oneself in connection with the great righteousness of God, and to realize our inadequacy, and our inferiority, and our lack of qualification, and to realize God's greatness, and his love, and his mercy, and to be so stricken with that that it brings about an emotional response to God. Now, pray tell... How are you going to elicit that response out of a human being unless you reach their mind and unless you reach their heart? You cannot get a person to repent any more than you can get a child to be sorry for what he did by simply beating on him. A parent that is simply going to be a harsh disciplinarian who uses only punishment and shouts and threats and recriminations is never going to get a child to truly repent. You can get a child to cry because you whip them, you, you, you scald them, you beat on them, you, you belittle them, and you defame them, and you'll probably get them to cry. But those tears are of shame, and maybe even of anger. Those tears are of bewilderment. Those tears are of uh, a, a lack of understanding as to why a parent is lashing out. They're not tears of genuine contrition. To get a child to cry tears of genuine contrition, a parent must say, I love you. And because I love you so much, I would die for you, I love you so much. 
When you do these things, you're hurting yourself. They're going to take you down a path that are going to be bad for you. And because I see a parent has got to love a child, embrace a child, show a child all day long, every day, every night, all of a child's life, that you love them. And that response then, a disappointment, a parent, a mother who would cry to a young teenage son, just, just break down and weep over something a son had done is going to get a far greater response from that boy than shouting and paddling and whipping ever could. It's going to break him up. He won't be able to stand to see his mom so brokenhearted. So God the Father, through his Son Jesus Christ, comes to us as struggling human beings. He says he is going to put together a group of his people, his ecclesia, or his called out ones, his people. The word church is, of course, a misnomer the way it is used today. But the spiritual organism that is the church of God has before it what we have characterized as a great commission. Now, let's not make that a political slogan. It is a commission, and a commission is a charge. It is an order. It's a command. Go do something. A commissioned officer is given an order, and there is a direct document that says this is your commissioning papers. When you commission a ship or you commission an officer, you launch it. You set him on his goal on his mission. You set him on a pathway that he is expected to fulfill, a goal that he is expected to achieve. That commission is to preach this gospel of the kingdom, and it is called repentance and remission of sins. Now, what is remission of sins? Remission of sins is not the beating of sins out of your hide. It is not the squashing of sin out of you by force. It is God's loving, merciful grace, remitting, meaning omitting, forgiving, washing away, forgetting your sins. Now, how are you going to reach carnal-minded, confused human beings out here by the millions, vast percentages of them having their, their visible perceptions altered by drugs, tens of millions of them afflicted with some sort of disease or another, with all the various religious and, and other concepts and ideas, how are you going to reach their minds and reach their hearts without a loving invitation, without somehow speaking to their heart, speaking to their conscious intelligence, speaking to their mind and fulfilling this great commission? You've got to reach the heart as well as the mind. You've got to reach the ear. You've got to reach the eye. But the ear and the eye are only vehicles by which thoughts and concepts take place and become rooted in what we call the heart, which is that part of the mind that is the emotion and the volition and the will, the willpower. Christ wanted repentance and forgiveness of sins preached. How do you do that? Unless you show what is sin. How do you show what is sin? Well, you've got to identify it. You've got to show what it is. And you've got to show why it's wrong, why it's bad for you. Why it's going to kill you, why it's going to cripple you, why it's going to cause a divorce, why it's going to burn your child to death, why it's going to cause you to die of cancer if you smoke or go around with a plug of stuff in your gum all day long. You've got to show people why they're hurting themselves. And then, almost with the same breath, just like a loving parent, you've got to say, I'm telling you this because I love you. I'm telling you this because Jesus Christ loves you, because he's reaching out to you and he wants you to repent and to receive his love and his mercy. And it's got to be preached, it says here, in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Now, the witness and the warning, the identity of Israel, 
The various uh, scenarios of biblical prophecy are a part of that message, of course. I have no doubt of that at all. Well, let's turn to the Bible, the Word of God, in 1 Corinthians 15, the first few verses, and read perhaps the best description of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of the kingdom of God, that is found in the Bible. Chapter 15, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. All right, there is the word gospel. Which I preached unto you, which also you have received. Paul is again defending his apostleship, his commission, and the fact, I'm preaching to you the gospel. Now, here's what I've been preaching to you. Here's what the gospel is. By which, that is through this gospel, you are saved if you keep in memory what I preached unto you. And what is it that he preached unto them, unless you believed in vain? For I delivered unto you the third reference to the fact he preached unto them something. I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. I received it of Christ. How that? Now, you could put a colon there. How that? Now you come to what the gospel is. Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture. That he was buried, and that he rose again the third day. Matthew twelve forty, as we know according to the scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas or Peter, and then of the twelve, after that of five hundred brethren at once, and etc. He goes on, James, all the apostles, and last of all, me, and I'm the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, and so on. Verse 12, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some of among you that there is no resurrection from the dead? Jesus Christ of Nazareth was central to that message. I want to ask... How many of us, and this is not for a showing of hands, but just as a concept in our minds, really believe as we look abroad at this world, at the vastness of the Soviet Union, of the more than one billion human beings who are Chinese, at the hundreds of millions of people in India and Bangladesh and Pakistan, of all of Southeast Asia, not enumerating all the nations on the face of the earth, but all the Gentile countries, with the vast upheavals, with the bullets flying between North and South Yemen, with uh, Marcos very ill but grievous police state rule over there in the Philippines with poverty and squalor and disease and I won't take an hour to, to produce several World Tomorrow programs or my Garner Ted Armstrong programs and tell you all of that now but you understand what I'm talking about to what extent has that great commission of preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God as it is defined here as Christ gave it to his disciples including a warm loving invitation to repent including the entire scenario of biblical prophecy, including a warning to each individual nation really been done. Here's Ezekiel. He is sitting in a prison camp, and he is given message after message after message, and he's a prisoner. He's given a message to Egypt, a message to Edom and Moab, a message to other nations all around him. Go and say unto these people, thus and such is going to happen. And then, of course, in this chapter of the book of Ezekiel, it very quickly comes to the time of the second coming of Christ, the establishment of the kingdom of God on the earth. Well, you know that Ezekiel never reached the people to whom the many messages that came to him were addressed. Least of all, his own people of Israel. He was in captivity. And he is prophesying of a future captivity to the people of Israel. The book of Ezekiel is alive and waiting to be taken up and preached yet in our time. Have the leaders of some of these nations been warned about what is going to happen in the Middle East, 
of what is going to happen to their own nation, to their own people? Have they literally been warned? Have they had a witness in the same way that ancient Nineveh had a witness when Jonah said, in a certain number of days, Nineveh is going to collapse? And have they been given an opportunity in the same way Nineveh was to do something about it, to repent before it's too late? A survey that I took some time ago proved to me beyond the shadow of a doubt that there is not one percent of the population of the United States of America that you could walk up to on the street and say, have you ever heard or do you believe about anything about a United States of Europe becoming a third power block armed with nuclear weapons attacking the United States instead of Soviet Russia? And that maybe we're going to be taken captivity sometime by this great conglomeration of nations that's going to rise up somewhere in Central Europe? Are there 1% of our population out here choking these freeways, running around like hundreds of millions of little ants on this earth who could tell you, oh yes, I've heard that, I understand that, I, I, I'm afraid that that might happen. No, brethren, as I look over in what appeared to me in the opening hours after the consciousness of my father is gone, as I look out into the future ahead of me and my family, and ahead of the Church of God International, I do not look at a task completed. I do not look at a job already done. I do not look at a commission already fulfilled. I look at a job that has been started. I look at a commission that has certainly been partially satisfied in some areas, but a very broad, a very wide, a very big job that is yet to do. I know that Almighty God is going to continue to bless the preaching of His truth. I know that if I remain faithful to the Word of Almighty God and do not compromise with it and continue to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ of Nazareth and not the gospel of a man and to use whatever God-given talent and ability God has given me through my father and my mother in preaching over radio, television, personal appearance campaigns, in writing, doing whatever I can do to fulfill this great commission, then I know Almighty God is in it, and He is with it, and that He intends to bless it, and that it is going to, in some measure, yet have an impact on our beloved United States of America. I'm a, an Oregonian. I grew up in Oregon during World War II, when for a time it looked like the United States might not survive. I'm probably as patriotic as any American walking around the earth today. I love my country dearly. I hate many of the things that I see happening to it. Every time I look at a shopping bag or even a golf magazine anymore, I see pictures of little children. Have you seen this child? Four of them in a magazine I saw on the aircraft coming out here yesterday. Nearly breaks your heart. Little kids grinning up. Somewhere there are parents whose children simply disappeared on the way home from school or from their own backyard or the shopping center. And they've never seen them since. And are being exploited by rotten, filthy perverts. The drug addiction in our country. The multi-billion dollar business that it is. Reaching clear down into kids seven, eight, nine years of age. Incredible. The serial killings, the mass murders, the hostage situations, all around us all the time. An absolutely sick America that needs a witness, needs a warning, needs so badly 
not only to be chastised in no uncertain terms, as a loving parent would chastise a child, but also, even as Jesus Christ wept over Jerusalem, 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 how oft would I have gathered you under my wings, but you wouldn't have it that way. Invited to repent. I believe that there is a very great work that must be done. For these last seven and a half years, I admit, I always hoped, I always saw, like a dim little light at the end of the tunnel, that I would be able to effect a complete reconciliation, if not in a corporate sense, if not in a church configuration, at least personally with my dad, at least as father and son, as family. I've been denied that. My father, Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong, is dead. Almighty God is alive. Jesus Christ is alive. The work of God is alive. And the Great Commission is yet to be fulfilled. And I believe Almighty God has willed that we are to have a part in it. And I want to conclude by leaving you with what I was told in 1967 by my mother. We had been up there to anoint her as we had done time and time again. And this time there were about a dozen of us. John Hill, Al Portoon, Norman Smith, Herman Hay, Debara Partian, Rod Meredith, Dr. Zimmerman, a whole group of us. We had been praying with my father around kneeling there to study. I think Dave may have been. You, no, you were in the field ministry at that time. He had not yet come into headquarters, or I know he would have been there. But we went in after our audible prayer. We, we prayed aloud around the table, all 12 of us or so, for about an hour or more, each in turn. And then went in to anoint my mother and to ask God to heal her and to raise her up. And she looked around at us after the anointing as if in perplexity. And she just said, now look, I guess she thought that a lot of department heads and a lot of people that needed to be over there doing their jobs were standing there around her bedside. And she said, don't you worry about me. You just go on over there and you do the work. And I can say to you today, yes, Mom.